I trust this layer when it's in the river. I'm still not there where I can say, oh, okay, now I got every piece of this, of this picture <laughs> and I, I will never get, I'm for sure. Already that teamwork creates a different spirit, a different learning atmosphere. You tuned into another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversation within the snow and avalanche world. I'm your European correspondent, Matthias Walcher, from the Austrian Association for Snow and Avalanches. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by Wiesn Avalanche Control, safety through innovation, with additional support from Ten Bell Brewing and into West Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Welcome, welcome, this time from my hometown Brunec in South Tyrol, Italy. Everything is so close here in Europe, almost the entire European Alps, like the whole arch, would fit into one of the two northwest forecast regions of Avalanche Canada. I actually just looked it up, it's crazy. And that's basically also our topic today, risk assessment in the vast Canadian mountains versus risk assessment in the European Alps densely populated with eager skiers. And this is also going to be a quite long episode, so I'm jumping right into it. We start with a short avalanche conditions report with our fellow from the Tyrolean Avalanche Warning Service, Chris Mitterer. Hi Christoph, I'm, I'm very happy that you're here again talking with me after uh, the last two months. Last time we talked uh, in the Avalanche Hour podcast was uh, mid-December. So welcome back, Christoph. Yeah. Hey, Matthias, thanks again for having me. It's a pleasure. Would be great if you could just talk a little bit about yeah, what happened in this last two months in the, in the Alps, how the, the snowpack changed, with what problems we were confronted. Last time in mid-December, that was just the time uh, after we got hit by uh, a couple of snowstorms coming from the north and northwest, bringing us substantial amounts of snow. And we were actually super happy that we have a, a quite a good winter start here all over the Alps. And uh, yeah, what followed after it? Yeah, I think uh, the words stop summarizing everything is variable. So uh, we had very variable weather conditions uh, with some very humid and cold spells and warm and humid spells and some cold and sunny periods. Uh, but to summarize all of it, I would say it's, it started uh, quite warm and wet after Christmas. Uh, so between Christmas and New Year, we had a uh, massive rain and snow event, which produced a uh, melt-freeze crust, uh, which was present over uh, several uh, square kilometers, uh, thousands of square kilometers. So you could dig out the crust uh, in Switzerland, in Austria, but also in parts of Italy. It was very present all over the place. And this uh, melt-freeze crust, due to the rain and snow event, uh, was then subsequently uh, buried by a couple of smaller new snow uh, events which were followed by a cold and, and dry period. And during this cold and dry period, 
large parts of the snowpack were built up. Uh, so large parts of the snowpack consisted of uh, facets and sometimes also depth hoar, mm -hmm. especially below this crust, we had uh, some really nice depth hoar chains. Uh, so in total, we had uh, a weekly bonded snowpack with a prominent melt freeze crust in there, sometimes also melt freeze crust sandwich, uh, which was not causing any, any damage um, at that period, but uh, got then uh, in late January buried by a massive storm and that was the time where, where problems started because uh, with that combination, lots of new snow, uh, weak snowpack uh, below, uh, we had perfect setting for a persistent weak layer problem, which was the case then. And on the first sunny days after that storm, uh, we got hit by a massive uh, skier-triggered avalanche cycle. I think I never recall such uh, a high activity of skier triggered avalanches uh, on those days our authorities recorded in two days about 70 to 80 uh, skier involvements um, yeah the fatality list was also quite long uh, in those days or in the subsequent days we had in total nine avalanche victims only in Tyrol uh, but uh, I know that also our uh, neighbors in Italy and Switzerland had, I think, two to three more fatal accidents. We had one victim in South Tyrol, one in Livigno, uh, and two in Grisons, so Davos and Schwal. And for Alberg was another one. True, for Alberg was another one. So in, uh, I think, uh, only 10 days, uh, we had almost 20 victims uh, in, in our surroundings. The... Most severe accident was just at the Swiss Tyrolean border in uh, Spies, in some noun, where we had uh, five victims within one avalanche. Avalanche was definitely a size three avalanche, so pretty large for a skier. Mm -hmm. That avalanche you're talking about here uh, with the five fatalities, that accident was remotely triggered. Um, we saw a couple of such incidents with remote triggering. What do you think was the main cause for this large propagation propensity of that weak layer, which produced most of the avalanches? And do you think it was mostly the same weak layer all over the place? A bit hard to tell because we were also quite surprised. So we forecasters were quite surprised about the propagation propensity on those first days. Weak layer was mostly sitting above the before-mentioned uh, rain and snow melt freeze crust or within the sandwich that had formed during uh, uh, the period between uh, Christmas and New Year's. I think it's a combination of two things. First, the weak layer was present all over the place, especially on uh, shaded slopes. All accidents basically happened in western, northern, and eastern aspects. So at the moment, they, those aspects don't receive too much sun here. And the second thing uh, was a fitting slab, actually. Uh, the slab was uh, around 40 to 60 centimeters. So perfectly bonded and uh, fairly homogeneous all over the place. Mm -hmm. And uh, those 40 to 60 centimeters allowed skiers to penetrate the, the weak layer so they could initiate 
almost everywhere. And uh, then the consistency of the slab allowed for or supported a, a large uh, fracture propagation. Mm-hmm. And in fact, most fatal uh, accidents had at least a size two and a half or size three avalanche, but also those uh, with only involvement without any injuries or fatalities tended to be quite large. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are definitely two ingredients which seem to have a good impact for avalanches. Is like when you have like such a weak layer in between two melt freeze crusts, which are rather, rather thin. These seem to be quite favorable for good propagation propensity. And then secondly, what you mentioned, like this big snowstorm, which was actually... Uh, first a cold front with like cold snow and then in that snow event the snow or the temperature got warmer snow got heavier and that was like the best the best um, slab you can get probably on top of that on on that weak layer yeah definitely the slab felt like tipped over so it was upside down which we learned also from from our scientific buddies is perfect setting for those large fracture propagations Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, how do you think will that behave in the future? That's pretty hard to forecast because future is going to be as turbulent as uh, as the past. So we got hit now by a very warm spell with really high uh, velocity wind gusts and it will proceed like that. So we will have a massive storm on Tuesday. And I think the weak layer is still sitting there waiting for the slab to getting built up again. And I think then we we have a back to the future of that scenario. So we will have first some some spontaneous activity uh, during the storm. And when the storm cleared uh, during sunny periods, we're going to have again uh, skier involvement. As a colleague of us in the U.S. said, I trust this layer when it's in the river. Thank you, Christoph, for this uh, for the, those insights. And uh, yeah, uh, I guess we will talk again in a, in a month or two and see how that that developed. Thank you, Chris. Thanks again. Ciao, Matthias. Well, hi, Matthias. <laughs> hi, Anna. I guess I have to introduce you. <laughs> Anna is a ski guide. Uh, She's Canadian and Austrian. She has been working in Canada for quite some time um, and she is currently guiding here in Austria. She's with me today because she's my partner and since I'm talking, we are talking with Rudi Kanebitter today, who is a mountain guide who has also been guiding in Canada. Uh, He's guiding in Europe as well and uh, we are talking about the differences between Europe and North America. And uh, if I wouldn't have done that interview together with Anna, I'm sure afterwards she would have said to me, eh, why didn't you ask that question or this question? So I thought, uh, make it a little bit easier and just do the interview together. So (laughs) Prevent the discussions afterwards. Exactly. Uh, Yeah. What are we talking about with Rudy today? Well, Rudy did an interview with a German-speaking mountaineering magazine, Bergensteigen, in which they talked about the differences in the approach towards avalanches between Austria and Canada. And Rudy sees a lot of differences in regard to the mentality, the avalanche education, the operational structure in guiding, 
And I think it's always a good idea to look around, be aware of what other countries are doing, and, you know, maybe think, huh, that's a good idea. And maybe even think about integrating some of the good ideas in our system here. And I guess we should also introduce Rudy. Oh, who is Rudy Kranabita, Anna? Well, Rudy did his mountain guides course in 1972 in Austria. And right after his guides course, he made his way to Canada. The plan was to go and work as a heli-ski guide for one season. But as it seems to have happened with a lot of Austrians and Swiss who went to Canada during the 70s and 80s, one season turned into 35 seasons. And after quite some time of working for CMH, Rudi took over their ski touring program and their summer mountaineering program. And then he also did some mountaineering trips in France, Austria, Alaska, Canada. And finally started his own ski touring lodge in Canada that was called the Engadine Lodge, which he had for about 12 years. And quite important also for his uh, or for our interview here is also that he was quite involved in the mountain guides program in Canada, right? Yeah, that's a crucial part of information. Thank you, Matthias. He helped develop the Mountain Guides program in Canada. So they came up with the structure and the curriculum that they now teach Mountain Guides in Canada. And this is also what we will talk about with Rudy, the differences between avalanche education in particular between Canada and Austria. And just to finish the short story of Rudy Kranabitter, he came back 15 years ago to Austria. He is now living back in Austria in Stubaital and uh, we'll just hop into the interview now. <clears throat> you, um, you mentioned in that article that Canadians would have more respect when they are heading out into the backcountry. What do you mean by that? Well, <laughs> my thought is that guiding community and the, uh, the general public is I think a little bit more respectful of the mountains. You know, the, we live here in the mountains. Everyone lives in the mountains here. Huh? And they step outside every day and they don't realize what goes on around them. In Canada, there's very few valleys where they're populated. You know, only the main valleys is where people are living. And uh, when they go in the backcountry, I think they have more respect of what if something goes wrong. I know from my ski touring experience is being in a lodge uh, for six weeks. In the years I was there, we didn't even have radio contact. And you were out there and you were really thinking, I have to do everything right to bring everyone home alive. Huh? I cannot afford to have an accident here. Whether it's a broken leg or a cut hand but in splitting wood, firewood for the for to keep the place warm. And so it is just that kind of thinking that we don't want to get hurt here, you know. And it's just the other day here I talked to some couple they wanted to go, said it's not the time to go there. Oh well We'll just call for help, you know, just that mentality. You shake your head. Huh? Mm -hmm. 
of course, in Austria, you're never that far away from infrastructure. There is places where you don't have cell reception, but they're, you know, few and far apart. Um, and people rely a lot on mountain rescue. And um, I think also just the subjective feeling of also, of mostly having some sort of infrastructure in sight. Of course, not everywhere in the Austrian Alps, but in a lot of places. Um, does this give a sense of false security of knowing that you're not, you know, just self-dependent, but that if something happens, you relying on help from the outside, or is it also to some extent, just not as dangerous as in Canada, because, um, you have, yeah, all these additional risks of being so far away from civilization in some cases. <laughs> the danger is always the same, huh? whether you have a house, uh, 100 meters over or not, and you get caught in a slide, it doesn't matter. But I, I just think the people here, I think number one is safety in numbers. There's always a shitload of people on the go. You know, they all somehow in the back of their mind think, oh, if anything happens, there's other people around. They're going to dig me out. Huh? And then they just risk more. It's just... The European mentality is different. When you see a, a speed sign on the road where it says 60 kilometers an hour, people drive 110 or 120. They don't give a shit, you know. And in Canada, I mean, it's different now too. It's changed. Uh, things are getting hectic. But I remember the years I was there, it said, 100 kilometers an hour and you drive for five hours and then there's another car passing you they were going all the 100 kilometers an hour you know maybe the odd one is going to speed there's always the odd one but it was just more disciplined here nobody's disciplined though it's just everything goes mm -hmm. i i often wonder if the people here who are out in the backcountry if they even see the risk you know if they if they have that in-depth risk perception and if they choose to be so close to that line of having an incident because well if, if you don't know what you're dealing with you can't really assess the risk it's very simple when you go out and you see a million other people ski touring and you see tracks up there and every every slope has a track on it there's not even a second thought that you would think there's a hazard you know it looks okay everyone skied down here everything skied out the people just don't give it a second thought that there could be a risk huh? but i think we just have now so many people going out. I mean, we were probably in the, the 70s. There was way fewer problems because there were way fewer people out there. I mean, we didn't learn anything about avalanches on the guide courses. There was nothing. Huh? That was like <laughs> minor. You have to know that as a mountain guide. You, we don't need to teach you about avalanches. You you know that already. 
I guess now it's different because there are so many people out there. The equipment has improved. Everything has improved. People have better skis, boots, gear, airbags, uh, avalanche transceivers and shovels and probes. And everyone focuses on rescue aspect. That's the biggest thing what gets focused on in our days, how to dig one out, you know. Well, I think this could then be tracked back to the structure and the content of avalanche education or avalanche awareness training. Well, the other aspect, avalanche education here does not exist in the same form as it does in Canada. Early 70s, Peter Shear started at BCIT and Vancouver University, and then soon after, Parks Canada started doing their own program and Highways had a program. Highways was a big contributor to that and that spilled over into the public eventually. And then they started putting together recreational avalanche courses, level one and level two, and they've been existing for a long time and they've been always hot sellers. Huh? Not that it makes the people a whole lot better in the backcountry, but at least it's an introduction. Huh? And it's a system, it has a flow right to the top, to the professional level. You know, and you can start out at level one and then you end up at professional uh, level three and you're doing a lot of courses, huh? including weather and it's, everything is there. And it's one organization that does that, you know, the CAA. And who does it here? I don't know. You know, the, the, we have, first off, the, the, the Levine and Warren Dienst is government operated. You know, they're hamstringed, I think, by budgets and whatnot. It's just so different, the whole system. Huh? And I wouldn't know if I wanted to sign up for an avalanche course right now. Where do I go? And depending on where you sign up, would you always hear the same content? Is it standardized? No, it's not. There is no standard. It's interesting with, uh, with regard to what you said at the beginning. We have been involved with like avalanches for such a long time as a civilization here in the Alps that it got very just part of, of, of the culture. And we, are, we have all these little organizations like the mountain guides and the mountain rescue and avalanche warning service and like all these different small organizations which are also structured not even country-wise but like in the small states within a country everybody has his own education everybody has his own uh, best standards and like as you said there's like no real Uh, not even a discussion often between these different or different organizations. And as a result, we have all this, every, all, every institution does their own thing. And then when it comes to avalanche training, especially for recreationalists, but also among these organizations, like, I mean, mountain guides do their own avalanche training. The avalanche commissions do their own training. The avalanche rescue team does their own training in every little in every little state, the same thing. And they all have different standards. They all have different outcomes. They all have at the end different levels. It would also be very nice to have such a thing as, as the CAA, like one organization who does is overlooking the 
the training of especially professionals, but also recreationalists, because as a recreationalist, if you do a training somewhere for three days and you want to do uh, a training, a higher training, like how do you find that training which builds on, on your first level you already did? You don't find that. Every, every training is like starting with the basics. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I've been battling that. I gave up. I said, you guys, I said, I, I don't understand you. First off, there's the Guides Association. You know, I said, you guys should be happy to have someone to do the avalanche training for your guides. Why would you want to do that in-house? It takes away from, from your time in the mountains and ski touring, uh, the guiding aspect. I said, you can all separate that. Let them do that. And then you have a credible organization and not, you know, under your umbrella. Oh, we do everything ourselves. Huh? And you know that they all have different uh, teaching methods. You know, the mythology is quite different of each instructor. There's just no guidelines. Huh? You have been involved in, in structuring that training for the Canadian mountain guide program, right? Where do you see the difference in, in training between Austrian mountain guides and Canadian mountain guides? Well, it's a different setup because uh, Canadian guiding is winter guiding. 80% is winter guiding uh, of a guide's job. And those guides all, or a lot of them always work in teams. You know, already that teamwork creates a different spirit, a different learning atmosphere. And when you have four guides together or six guides or even two guides are different. Uh, when you have two guides guiding a group of people, it's different than if you're on your own all the time. And that's what's in Europe. You're always individual, an individual guide, you know. And guides here generally don't talk to each other too much. Yeah? They keep uh, everything close to their chest, all their cards, to know where the good snow is and, and all the shortcuts. And it's very, very competitive where the Canadian guiding, you know, you talk to all the guides, you know, you're happy to get information. You're happy to use that. And so the training in, in Canada is first off more specific towards like there's the heli skiing part and then there's the mountaineering part and then there's the ice climbing part and the avalanche part and the canadian guide also focuses more on customer service than here you know to be more social with your people you have to take care of them you actually show them how to ski down somewhere here the guy just skis ahead and goes down and waits for you to show up huh? how you get down there they don't give a shit huh? i mean you can't throw them all in the same pot but mostly that's how it works huh? and, and guiding here I, I think over the last generations it's just come to a point where the, the standards, the technical standards have been pushed very, very high and everything is everything else what's important for guiding has been 
left behind. Uh, I had guys on guides courses, you know, they, they were not the world's best skiers and climbers, but they were super good with people. And I said, well, who do I want for a guide here? The guy who climbs a 8A or whatever, or do I want the guide who climbs a, a 6 and does a super job with his clients? I said, I prefer him as a guide because he's going to have a client and he's going to keep his client. And the other guy is just going to move on and on and on. So as you mentioned, the Canadian Mountain Guides education or courses outsource the avalanche education to the Canadian Avalanche Association, the CAA, and they teach after a structure that is put into levels from one to three, where you can kind of excel your knowledge and your education. And they follow strict guidelines, which provide common ground for everybody to communicate based on these guidelines. And it just feels like in Canada, there is way more exchange between the guides and also debriefing after a close call, whether this is avalanche related or not, plays a much more important role. Again, because guides here often work individually and it is clearly not as, fe as effective to debrief on your own in the evening after an incident instead of, you know, getting external feedback. Do you think this lack of common ground on how to talk about these issues is part of the reason why there is less exchange and less talk about the subject here and that people may be, you know, a little scared to lose their face because we don't all have the same level of education and the same guidelines to talk about? You know, if, if you look at the You know, for example, InfoX, uh, we don't have anything like this. People would be afraid to report because they don't know what to report. When you go out, you know, I address issues. People are afraid to say, oh, I don't know. What do you think? You know, they all say, oh, I know. When you go out, people, they look at the, the, the daily uh, Lagebericht. And that's what they use, uh, you know, oh, it's only a three, we can go. They don't know, a lot of them don't know what they have under their feet, you know, including the local guys here. I spend enough time with them, you know, and when you start talking about snow, they get afraid, uh, because they can't talk the same language. They're afraid to share information. They have no information to start with because they haven't dug a snow pit in the last 10 years, and they wouldn't know what to look for. So what do they have to talk about, you know? And then you start talking to them and, oh, I know, I know, I know, but they don't have anything to add to it, you know? When we talk about InfoX, that's quite an advanced, also documentation tool for 
operations, but also single guides that raises the question, like, first of all, of course, to like, to report an incident, observations, whatever, on the InfoX, you have to have a profound knowledge of like uh, the snow and avalanche situation. And at the same time, as I said, it's a documentation tool. How do guides here in, in Europe or in, in Austria do their documentation and their decision making? Do they have a booklet or, or how does that work? No, I had written to the, the, to the association. I said, what are you guys doing? I said, the last 10 years I've been here, there's been more guide-related accidents than I've ever seen. If I add up the, the guiding days in Canada over the winter, you know, if you go heli-skiing, two weeks you ski as many runs as a guy who goes out guiding all winter. You know, we made it a practice. You keep your logbook, your daily logbook, you make your observations. It doesn't need to be a story. People have a field book. They write in quick weather notes in the morning, whatever they did during the day, a few lines. And I said, maybe, you know, that would help someone to make further decisions. Oh, we go from area to area. I said, it doesn't matter. You know, at least when you look at the weather in the morning, it forces you to look outside and see what's going on. You know, when you have a temperature drop of 20 degrees or, you know, it warms up 20 degrees and you don't notice it. You might, you might notice it, but also like writing it down helps you to like see things which you probably wouldn't think about if you wouldn't write them down and recap the situation which you're facing that hey, this takes away from ski time huh i i have yet to see a guide here doing a, a beacon exercise when they go for a ski tour you know they just turn it on and go because this hour this is going to cut into your skiing time and you, it's not needed one thought that I had is that because we are mostly individualists here in Austria and in Canada, it's usually either companies or guiding organizations where guides work together in teams, but um, where the company is also dependent on this team working and keeping the guests safe and happy, that there is more checks and balances. Of course, also in Austria, every guide's top priority is to keep their guests safe but let's say an accident happens with a mechanized skiing company that employs 20 guides in Canada it feels like more people have more on the line and that that might be a reason why the safety standards in Canada are higher just because of this structure of working in teams versus working individually well should be the same whether it's a team or not you know i think here what's happening is it's not the company you work for it's eventually the guides association will get a bad name huh? and say you know what are they doing you know i mean accidents you can't avoid that's just it's going to happen but there's accidents and then there's accidents huh? And I think as a professional, you have to think about those things. You know, that's why people pay you money. I think it's the association's responsibility to actually look at those things. 
and say, let's talk about it. What are we doing wrong here? Every year there's guide incidents huh? and uh, avoidable incidents. But, you know, what are you going to do if no one ever tells you anything? But, you know, they say, oh, that's like the cat biting in its own tail, you know, when we do that. Admitting we screwed up. Huh? And I said, what's wrong with that? So where we go from here? What are we doing? What are we? How can we change that? It's just like an enormous task. Huh? The public, and there's the the guiding community. The public is reliant on the bulletin says basically. There's no other source. Huh? But they are. And I said many times, why don't you guys just start something? There's the big umbrella, and then you can educate the public, set up a nice flow that leads from the beginner right up to the advanced avalanche technician. I also wonder like, how this agreement between these organizations can be found to come up with a common thing, because I also th see this as a, a root problem in this system here. You know, you have to start from scratch, basically. I mean, Canada is in a fortunate situation. It started when it did, huh? And a lot of people there came from the guiding community. They all pulled together, and it's a non-government organization. So, you know, they can basically do whatever they want to do. Huh? We're here. It's always government-regulated. Huh? The guides courses are government-regulated. The avalanche uh, warning system is regulated by the government. The guides do their own thing. I said many times, why don't you guys do your own thing? Start a forecasting system for guides only. We have so many guides in the field. You don't need all those weather stations. You have live information huh? every day from all the guides. But they're too lazy to sit down and fill out a form which takes two minutes. They have cell phones, they have everything. They're connected all the time. Huh? I said, we could have a, such a good system with all the guides and where they're working every day. And you get information and you can put out a good bulletin. Huh? Would it be a better bulletin than the actual one we have right now? Yeah, it, it It could be, if the guys are all in the same wavelengths and they know what they're talking about, it could. Right now it wouldn't because you'd get such a mishmash of information that it'd be hard to sort through. Huh? But if you have guys where they're all at the same level and then it wouldn't take long to put together a bulletin that actually is useful for the guy. We already realized there are a lot of points where you would see room for improvement would you say you're one of the only warriors on changing the status quo no i'm not the only one a friend of mine Fankhauser horse he's but he said he's just getting fed up with all the you know it's just a a losing battle i was involved when i came back uh, Meyer asked me if i would come and work with him and I quickly realized that working with him means working for him uh, it's just constant battles I 
Then they say, well, the English language is so much better for this. Uh, like I've been telling them the last few weeks, I said, you guys talk about this Alchne pro problem, you know. What is an Alchne problem? It doesn't exist in the language, Alchne problem. You know, I said, is that snow from last year? Well, but that that's a big issue because what we are trying to say with like a persistent weak layer problem or an Alchne problem is that that this is a problem which is buried under the new snow or the snow which is on top of it. You can't see it and you should be patient because it's like long, it's a long living problem. It can produce big avalanches and that information should end at our listeners or readers or whatever. And if they know that this information is attached to the Alchne problem, then they hopefully know that this is a serious problem problem which can lead to big avalanches in that area which is determined in the forecast if you do not have that background knowledge that then you're talking about those people who just work with the with the danger level and then it gets really risky because then it's like a gambling thing especially when they still go out with with avalanche danger level three well i would just simply go more into depth where people actually know what it why it is that way simple explanations are that you can find simple ways of explaining a situation huh? i would have one question because we've obviously maybe complained a little bit about the austrian system here now uh, in regard especially to snow and avalanche education but you as an austrian educated mountain guide went to Canada and helped build up the system there. Is there some things that you thought, okay, this is, you know, this is good. I want to implement it. No, we didn't know anything. None of those guys knew anything. Mike Wiegele and Hans Moser and all the Swiss guides, they didn't know anything from a hole in the ground. Huh? That was all learning. Huh? We were forced to learn. Like when I went there the first week and all the stuff we skied, I said, holy shit, you guys are really far out. They had like bomber snow conditions. Huh? You could ski anything, nothing happened. But once the first accident started to happen, huh? then the yellow light came on huh? and said, oh, something is not right. You know, we started doing weather observations and then we started doing snow pits and then we started to chart the runs and we started taking photographs of where slides started to happen every year. And it was a long process. Huh? I didn't know anything or you thought, oh, the other guy knows, hey, he, he skied down there, we can ski there. And there was... Uh, It was the same basically as it is here now, everyone for himself. So. And the teamwork only started to happen over time. Huh? Guides meetings, they didn't happen huh, in the beginning. You went out skiing in the morning and came home at night and it was all good. Huh? All this stuff had to grow. Huh? And, and it took many years, but it was a... a fast forward movie uh? it, like everyone 
started picking up on it really quickly. And then at one time, the government said, hey, what's going on? Too many accidents in the heli ski industry. Huh? Are you guys going to police yourself or do we have to step in? You know, there was a lot of brilliant ideas. Guys came together and they started doing different things. And, and you know, I think it was a, a really good system. Adding to the question of Anna, maybe the last one, is there uh, other things you see here in Austria right now which Canadians could introduce in their system? No. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Give up. Well, this is really, really interesting. This is very interesting. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Perfect. Thank you, Rudy, for your time. Yeah, sure. Oh, you're welcome. Hmm. Those were some interesting insights from Rudy there. It would be interesting, though, to see or to hear about the Austrian Guides Association's perspective on the topics we just discussed. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good idea, actually. Who do you think would be an appropriate interview partner here? Hi, my name is Albert Leichtfried, and I'm the technical director of the Austrian Mountain Guide course. Albert Leichtfried is a level four ski instructor since the mid-90s. He has been working and is still working as a ski guide at the Alberg. In 2000, he then did his mountain guide education uh, with the Austin Mountain Guide Association and he also studied meteorology. So he became a meteorologist and was working for the Austrian Meteorologic Service as an expedition forecaster. He did this job until 2013. He was guiding during this time as well, was also involved in the training program for mountain guides. But in 2013, he became the technical director of the mountain guides training program in Austria, therefore quit his job with the Austrian Meteorologic Service. And it's actually this topic, like his work with the mountain guides training, uh, where will we, where will be, where, where will, <laughs> where we will. <clears throat> and that's the topic where we will be discussing. <laughs> Well, maybe we'll give Matthias some time here to untie the knot in his tongue and let Albert Leichtfried take over from here. And during the years, I had also a career as a professional ice climber. And that's what I still do, is try to, to find some new lines, some areas or interesting countries to do a, like an expedition or a a trip there to to find new new possibilities on the ice so. so climbing is your passion and skiing seems like because you're an instructor <laughs> as well skiing and climbing <laughs> yeah your experience becoming a ski instructor where did you did you get some avalanche courses during that time so i came from a career as a professional ski racer so it was a, a different time. That time, the, the off-piste thing was not so intense, uh, not so many people around. And actually, I grew up at the, at the Adelberg, so I had a lot of friends there and a lot of ski guides, mountain guides. And then it started to that they took me also on some ski tours or off-piste skiing. 
And that was the start probably. And also my father, that's also a big point for sure. He, he was ski guide since 1967 in Overlech in the Adelberg. And there I, I saw a lot of times. I saw him guiding. I saw the, his passion. I saw the people. And yeah, for sure it was, it was something from my childhood on I wanted to do. And then, yeah, then I did uh, courses, maybe the first avalanche-related course was, was on the ski instructor courses, and then later the, on the guide courses. And for sure, I worked for 10 years in the ski school in, in Overlech, which was very much focused on off-piste skiing. And we had like a guide room, a guide meeting every Every morning we did a lot of research on, on snow data, on collecting information. And there I learned as well a lot how to handle weather data with snow data and with experience and yeah, to share with the, all the other guides. It was a good time to get a lot of experience on snow. So with regard to the courses which lead you to become a mountain guide, how are these courses structured and how long do they take? And with special regard to snow and avalanches, how much is it actually already a prerequisite or in what way do you teach it during the course? Yeah, the thing is to get into the course, there is an entry test. And actually with all the courses and the entry test, we have an international standard on that. That's the IFMGA standards. And this is actually the base for entry tests for our level, what we want to have, and as well for, for our courses and what we teach on the courses. So that's, that's uh, in 27 member countries. It should be about the same levels, about the same standards, about the same training. And yeah, it is the entry test. You have a variety of disciplines. You have like, Uh, skiing, ice climbing, crampon, walking in summertime, then rock climbing, alpine climbing, sport climbing. And also you have to bring a, a list of tours, what you did on rock, on ice, on snow and stuff like that. And also a, a talk in the end so that, that it's not only technical, it's also Yeah, to talk a half an hour that we have an impression of his personality as well. So that, that is the entry test. And there are some ski tours and, and also ski tours on glacier terrain and also a traverse with skis, what they have to show. Yeah, I think it's uh, 30 ski tours and 10 of them in, in glacier terrain and plus uh, like a traverse in glacier terrain. So that, that's the entry. And in the course, we have 98 training days during three years. And in this time, we have a lot to do on different disciplines. And uh, one big part for sure is the ski part, where we have probably in total the most days spent for skiing, avalanche and snow education. It's also not only the snow and avalanche thing. It's also the ski technic thing. We, we put some, some days on. So in the end, we have actually six courses which are connected to, to skiing. So that's a quite a basic snow and avalanche course. And it is a ski touring course in glacier terrain. Then we have the free ride course, which is a yeah, off-piste guiding 
within a ski resort. Uh, and then at the end, we have a, a ski traverse on glacier terrain. So that is the four technical courses. And there are two ski technique courses, which I had not a lot to do with, with snow and avalanche things. It's just to train them on ski technique. So we take it serious because in Austria, skiing is a, is a big thing. And it's also a big possibility. Otherwise, I think it's not possible to live out of mountain guiding without the skiing thing. And yeah, actually the, the first course in the Avalanche basic education course, which is eight days, we work closely together with a forecaster of Tyrol. They do some, some teaching also there. And this course is actually to get all the snow and avalanche yeah, basic informations and training. It's not a lot focused on guiding. It's more on the on the snow and avalanche basics. So that's maybe the the main course. What you are also interested in in talking about. Uh huh. So you're saying this basic course for snow and avalanches, which takes about eight days. And then afterwards, you are uh, mainly focusing on, on ski touring, on, on free riding, on decision-making, where that information with regard to snow and avalanches is coming into place, right? Which is used in practice. Yeah, for sure. They're also on these three other, like the free ride course and the ski touring and also the, and on the traverse, snow and avalanche topics, they have a big influence for sure. but. But also there is a lot of time spent on the, on the correct guiding, on like tactics and techniques, um, how to guide in, in free ride and ski touring terrain. And for sure, yeah, one big part is also watching the snow and making decisions whether to go or not to go and stuff like that. Uh, we try to be wide open to the market or, or all the existing approaches in the market that the mountain guides, they learn or they, they see the different uh, ways how to to come to a decision. We are not very much focused on having just one way. So we try to include as much as existing uh, methods that they they see what what is on the market, and then for sure in the end that they found out the the best way for their personal decision making process. It is a very broad skill set you have to teach there in these mountain guides courses in general. In other countries, for example, in Canada, the snow and avalanche course is centralized with like having the, mount the mountain guides, the ski instructors, the patrollers, the uh, rescuers, everybody who is involved with snow and avalanches basically takes the same courses, which is then afterwards, certainly it's easier to like for other organizations to recognize courses which they have already taken because it's like generalized and centralized. And then also the expertise is somehow outsourced, right? There's like an organization, the Canadian Avalanche Association in that case, uh, which has the competence in the snow and avalanche uh, related topics. Do you think that could be an advancement in Europe? in Austria as well? Yeah, it makes advantages for sure. On the other hand, it's a completely different system, the mountain guide training in Canada, than to the, the European systems. We have the entry test and we have 
with these entry tests, they get mountain guides and that's the only goal they have. So they, they have all these different disciplines. And uh, in the end, they, they have to finish with the mountain guide with the IFMJ mountain guide diploma. And in Canada, it's separated into different guiding courses with every uh, guiding course, like the ski guide they have, they can work separate. Uh, so, so they are finished with the ski guide. Then you can do the alpine guide, you can do the rock guide. And with every guide, you are allowed to work in this special topic. And when you want to be an IFMGA guide, you have to do them all and you end up with the IFMGA standard as well. And that's this advantage, what they have in Canada, that they can focus on, on the ski guide only on one topic, actually. It's the skiing and the guiding the skis, where we have the whole wideness of the alpine disciplines we have to teach. And yeah, you would have to uh, change the system completely, which uh, probably is not the, the easiest approach because we are connected to the PSBA, an institution of the state where they end up with a with a diploma from the state in Austria. And there are these learning schemes they are already set into this governmental system. So yeah, a change in the whole system would be a big step and it brings advantages, but it also brings disadvantages because we train the guides so if you have the ifmga at, at your focus we probably can handle the situation better connected between the disciplines but when you only see the skiing or the ski guiding topic then for sure that the advantage of the canadian system is that they can focus more and also outsource training and stuff like that in their ski guiding topic, but they end up with ski guides. They are not really, all of them are focused to end up with the IFMGA diploma. This is somehow also a, a cultural grown standard here in Austria, which I have the feeling that like there's the, the mountain guide and you don't really want to split that up. But isn't that then resulting when it comes to snow and avalanches in less skills among the mountain guides because that training isn't that extended just with regard to snow and avalanches now that's for sure a point when you see a ski guide only focusing on skiing and guiding with skis but we have that also in austria because you with the master ski instructor diploma you can also take the ski guide diploma and then you are in the same situation actually to be able to to guide on skis and you have the same competences as the mountain guide on skis. And for sure, yeah, when, when that is your main focus, you can put in more effort and for sure, yeah, also probably more education and maybe you are more days on the skis, you're more days than the average mountain guide. So you are kind of a specialist and yeah, for sure you are in this topic, probably better educated and also yeah you get more skills but i don't think it's it's just a point in in canada they have these uh, specialists and and they are better we have them also here when you're interested and focus on ski guiding you will put more effort into it and maybe you 
do more of courses and training your own motivation for that and then you you're getting like a specialist on the ski guiding topic but yeah it's not necessarily in in the guides training so we have a certain amount of days and probably this part is a little less than yeah when you only take the ski guide of the canadian system so it's a it's a little bit more your own turn to get more skills and education when you do something you want to do. Mm -hmm. And here we are probably exactly at the point which is Rudy criticizing so much. There are like so many people outdoors and recreating skiing, like not only talking about the mountain guides, but talking about recreationists, talking about ski guides as well. And when they would like to like get a deeper insight, there is the structure in Austria missing that you have the possibility to like get higher levels in education in snow and avalanche because there isn't that centralized system with different courses on different levels but there is like different organizations which have their courses but which are usually basic courses and especially as a recreationalist there are so many options very hard to like increase your knowledge level there find a course which suits you and same as with our professionals about mountain guides or avalanche commissioners like the courses where i'm involved in or like they're very often basic because you have to get all the people on board right and but then like the next step often is very hard to find yeah that's for sure is a, a point We have much more people in a much smaller area. So that creates another situation. So you have in Canada, you have huge untouched areas and probably less uh, less crowded in a certain amount of space. And that's for sure a difference. That's, uh, that, that also is a, a challenge. Mm -hmm. That pushes people also out into more challenging terrain and more riskier terrain yes that that is a fact for sure well some guides or some some people are pushed into it because because a lot of people are are out and and maybe this keeps or makes the the situation a little less dangerous for them in the mind because yeah there are 150 around and no problem it should be fine or On the other side, you're in Canada, you're alone, and you have to find out what the situation is. It's for sure a difference. It's also, for me, for sure, there is a maybe a lack on, on higher education or, or possibilities than what we have on the, on the highest levels. But on the other hand, I learned a lot, uh, not only for, from courses, I learned a lot by myself, by being outdoors by joining a group of guides and doing the job and try to focus on taking out a lot of knowledge out of the of the practical part of it yeah that is a for sure a point what what you have to or what you need for a higher skills not only the courses 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 at the end you take on the course the basics and uh, the real learning takes place uh, outdoors for me but at the end then we put more uh, into the the certain personalities of the guides so it's 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 in individual you can learn 
for your life or you can stop learning after a basic course. So, and that makes it very, yeah, very individual. And uh, for sure, there is what I can see that um, there is always also, uh, that's what I would say, that uh, the world outside of the course sometimes or that like the after years and years of guiding i can see some some misdevelopments or some developments they are different than what we teach and what you learn on the guide course and and that's maybe a, a big thing that's uh, hard to to understand for me actually that the, the guides act different after the course quite yeah immediately <laughs> Then they then they are acting in these uh, yeah controlled situations uh, from the instructors, and and that's a that's for sure a point where we where we should improve that this way of acting some really they they change after the course and quite immediately after the course, and uh, yeah that that is not in our hands when you when you talk with instructors or or like me in the position of the technical director, but that is what we try to focus, that uh, we try to build a situation that the guides also act five years after the course about the same than what they learned on the course. And that's a big thing, I think. You mentioned that after your um, basic courses in snow and avalanches, you worked in Oberlech and you had this group of people, of experienced people, where you had an exchange every morning and you, you know, you were kind of learning from a group, you know, improving your experience, but not being on your own, but also having the backup of somebody telling you, okay, well, you know, think about that again. <laughs> and just, I think that that is something that in Europe, most guides don't have because you come out of the courses and then, okay, what options do you have? Maybe on the Alberg you work for a ski school that focuses on off-piece, but really almost every, everywhere else, you're going to be self-employed and you're going to be on your own. Your thought processes are not challenged by anybody but yourself. And if you have something like a close call, you have a, a womb for some you know, uh, observation in the terrain where you think, oh, maybe you know, I was lucky today then you also have nobody to debrief that with and learn from those experiences. But it's actually just something that gets, you know, put maybe somewhere in the back of your head. <laughs> and, and to add on that, that's usually a quite a long process, especially with regard to snow and avalanches and until you're actually, you got all these links between like um, how problems form, like how long it takes until they, they uh, resolve to read also terrain, to read like, uh, to guide through terrain. That's a long proce process where you need, in my point of view, quite a long time of uh, mentorship or at least a course, as you said, Albert, That when you do a course, after the course, after eight days, like also when it's an intensive snow and avalanche course, you you didn't you do not reach a point where you comfortable with the knowledge you gained there. You have to go out, you have to get experience, you have to look in the snow, you have to do this for quite a long time until you until you get comfortable. And that could be one hand by mentorship, as you mentioned, could also work at the other hand with like having a course which is like taking longer like maybe 
every year for a week for like two years or so like having like really these times where you have the mentorship of teachers and in between where you have <laughs> the time to to recap what you've learned to look into the snow to like learn it's totally right i mean i would say it, it will never stop after years and years and years of experience i'm still not there where i can say oh, okay now i got every piece of this of this picture <laughs> and I, I will never get i'm for sure and uh on the other hand uh yeah this situation we had in in, in the Overleski school where we had this course or uh, this group of guides being together and also we did a lot of statistics and a lot of talking and a lot of judging each other or or, or making decisions not by yourself but by the group and um That was a big advantage on my getting a lot of experience and skills and, and, and learn from the experienced guides. And this is not happening anymore in the ski school because yeah, there's no more room, no more time probably because when you see it now, it changed. In that time, the, all the ski guiding was run by four, four or five uh, ski schools in the Adelberg. Now you have like I think it's it's around 50 St. Anton only. So you have like a, a huge scene or a, a huge variation of institutions and schools and alpine or clubs or whatever. And there is no more such a connection yeah, between them. So that are, that's what you said. It's more like you're on yourself. But at the other side, there is for sure there is a chance to build up such groups again and to work together. It's not um, also the, what we did in this, in this time in the ski school uh, 20 years ago was, was the focus of some guides. They wanted to do that. There was one like Harry Mark, he, he went to Canada and saw that, that they are working like this. And he brought the idea and then there was some people, uh, some guides together. They said, okay, yeah, we, We, we focus on that. And for sure, it took us more time uh, to build it up uh, besides our guiding day that we had to put into that. Uh, what other guides, yeah, they, they go for a beer after that. And we, we came together and wrote our formulas and stuff like that and, 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 and came together again. But at the end, it was like a little hype for us to, because we found out that It's a cool thing to do uh, to to develop such a such a group, and this for sure it, it's possible that uh, people or the guides build up such structures again. It's for me guiding is not only having the technical skills and the knowledge; it's also a big thing of networking. When I'm out uh, on the Adelberg, for sure I have uh, some guides uh, on the phone or on the WhatsApp where where we are connected still it's still the same situation but we don't have this guiding room where we meet anymore but but this this network still exists and i think that's a big thing and that's for sure you can take from the canadian system because they they have this much more developed and on the, on the other hand what what you mentioned uh, to, to to have courses uh, later um, the only possibilities on the guides training, what we have is a CPD uh, on special topics. And 
yeah, also this snow and avalanche topic or ski guiding topic, there are CPDs, but yeah, you don't have to do this special topic. You can choose as a guide and it's uh, it's only two, three days every three years you have to do. So it's, yeah, it's quite small, but it's a possibility with uh, with a higher higher level courses probably. But yeah, it's still, you see, it's still individual, maybe more individual than in the Canadian way. You would also say it's individual on how guides prepare for a day of ski touring, how they do their risk assessment, because you said during the um, guides course, you want to show them all the different methods there are, but you don't want to pin them down on certain guidelines that are now the gold standard of Austrian risk assessment, but you want to show them um, the full array of options. But from your experience, how do guides prepare or do the risk assessment before a day of ski touring? Is it different for everybody or is there certain standards? I mean, we, we try to, yeah, to show them certain standards, what, what they should do. But for sure, there are, there are many possibilities what to do and, and, and how many energy and time you spend. So that's individual probably more individual than you work on a heavy ski company where you have a complete detailed structure, what you have to do from the morning till, till the afternoon. Uh, yeah, it's probably a bit more European that is more individual. And yeah, both, both ways probably have, have advantages and disadvantages. We are probably more spontaneous or, or more concentrated on the moment to to change decisions to make decisions not in the morning and then they are set for the whole day so we are probably more open to 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 see how it comes and to decide after that look on on the terrain and the other way is more more structured more uh, fixed on 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 decisions before you see the terrain and probably you are also a little yeah fixed on that it creates also some disadvantages probably but yeah every system has its has its uh, problems and it's it's positive thing wouldn't wouldn't you agree that a system where you take the decisions for the day in advance urges you to take bigger risk margins and makes it safer it can be for sure it depends a lot on on how these decisions have have been made and how how much space is but yeah this system is is hardly doable probably on on like like guiding scenes like the Adelberg because it's a it changes so so quickly that you, that you can see that also the decisions changing during a day because of of finding out on on the spot on the moment if you are fixed from the morning with that amount of people outside it won't really work i i would say that that is a, a good possibility on terrain where where you are alone with with your heli guiding groups it's no problem because when you don't do some runs there that there are still a lot of possibilities which are good for that day. But if you do it on the Adelberg, 
you probably would not find any more possibilities to to do some runs which are yeah also possible because you made your decisions or you made your impressions of of the day during the day there are some days where you find out why oh, yeah, the the situation is critical and there are some days as well where you find out okay the situation is completely different than than what you expected and yeah to be flexible on that it, it's not only having more risk and more danger in it it's also probably having the possibility to to change your mind and to to change your decisions during the day more than than on a fixed structure yeah when there's so many people out and you have to competing and you have to to provide for your guests that's a that's a big difference and that's that makes the difference actually that that was like this before and it will stay like this and it would only change when when we we would have just uh, 150 people in the whole Tyrol uh, uh, office terrain then then the situation will would change completely but there's so many activity ongoing so it's a it's a different situation where you have to handle different I have one last question just because it's also something that we discussed with um, Rudy yesterday. Canada has for all different guiding organizations, but also for the individual guides, they have a platform, the InfoX, where you can, you know, after a day of skiing, you upload your observations, you upload it if you dug a snow profile, your weather observations, your rating for the day, so your individual rating, okay, the public avalanche bulletin said it was um, a three. In my opinion, where I was, it was a two, and the persistent weak layer was present here and here, and so on. Um, so it's a type of evening guides meeting, but that you do in your head, but that would also help, you know, share a lot of information with the public avalanche forecasters and that would yeah maybe give everybody a chance to uh, think a little bit more about this topic and about the processes in the snowpack do you think this would work in Austria and do you think it would make sense yeah it makes sense it works because I'm doing it since the 90s and still do but it's not so uh, yeah seeable or, or official because we we had this this way of thinking from the 90s which i told the story one guy harry was in canada and brought the idea and we from that time we 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 did a report every day on every on every guiding day so we we wrote down what we did what we thought what we found out what we yeah like you you described so that we did from the 90s on on paper and later on an internet platform and this still is existing in the Adelberg so we have this platform but it's only visible for for people or for guides they want to join in this group so it's quite big there is a quite a big network and also it's also connected to the forecasters. So um, it's like a, a platform where you can put in your informations and the administrator of it, he can produce PDFs 
with this information where you can see, okay, 17 guides thought that it's not Avalanche Danger 3, it's Avalanche Danger 2 because of this and this and this and this. And, and this information they send also to the forecasters. So it's, it, is, it is existing, but it's, it is quite small and not visible by the public because probably it's also a thing um, how much people you want to join on such, such uh, systems. Also probably a, a point that there is so much going on in, in, in our regions that is, um, yeah, you have to be careful how many, how many guides or how many people actually you take with this system and, and to show also this system. So that's an internal thing between the guides of the Adelberg or the guides who want to join this system in the Adelberg. It works good. I can watch the, the activities, the runs they did yesterday. I can see how it was, how was the snow quality, how was the danger, ideas about risk and, and danger on it. So it works, and and but yeah, it's quite hidden. And at the end, I would say it it should be used more, and probably also shown to a wider wider area would be cool. For me, on the other hand, yeah, it's always how many or what information you want to show of your guiding to the public is or is a, a sensitive thing. What is then when there is an accident and stuff like that? Um, so it is in that way quite internal, but for sure, for me, it is a, a big thing, a good tool, and it would be cool to have similar things for, for more people. Yeah. That's very cool to hear <clears throat> that you have something like that for the Alberg region. I really didn't know. And as far as I know, again, there's no such thing for other regions in Austria where there's also a lot of guides working. But you were saying you have to think about what guides you want on there. And as we know, there's a lot of different ways how you can, you know, guide people on skis off piste or in backcountry. Why do you say, you know, you want to make sure that there is that maybe certain guides don't get onto these platforms? Is it because of the quality that you think, okay, you know, maybe people coming from this way of education might not bring the same quality to the table? Or is it because, you know, it's so competitive that if you write in, okay, well, skiing was really good and safe over at Albona or whatever, and then next day there's you and 20 other guides there because <laughs> you shared it on this platform. That's a point. I mean, the platform is open. It is run by the Skischule Omisberg. And probably there are not all guides in because not all of them know. And that you have to have a connection to the net network. When you don't know about this thing, then uh, Martin won't come to you and ask you to, to be part of it. It's, it is always the other way around. So yeah, that's why for sure a lot of guides just don't know. But he is open for, for any guide. I mean, it's, it is a guide thing, so that it won't be open to the public for him and for sure yeah and and some guides they they are worried a bit about yeah giving their their secrets into that but i never had a problem with that I, i'm doing it since since years and i'm still skiing on 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 untouched terrain not not less often than than before i would say 
But yeah, there are fears in it. And also for sure, when you put this information out to, to the public, there are more concerns than also, also like financial stuff is, is behind in their heads. When you, when you write down your, your whole uh, runs you did, then you are, yeah, also you, you show what you did. And for sure, there are some are very often or, or, or every day they, they put down their report. And others, they just watch and, and taking out. So they are more, more consuming. But yeah, that's, that's how it is. But yeah, nowadays, it's, it's probably harder to set up some, some groups and settings like that. Everything is more individual, more competitive and stuff like that. So yeah, not so easy. Yeah, it would be great if, <clears throat> if everybody would just see the, the benefits, which can be which can be gained from it like also with regard to like just risk reduction um one last thing uh rudy mentioned yesterday was standards when we talk about standards he, he said in canada every time guides go out with guests they do uh avalanche training before the tour is that something you teach at guides courses yeah we we teach And I know the the reality for sure. It, it for sure is well different, and also probably individual. So sometimes you have one day you meet at a certain time, and and it's it's uh, yeah. The the setting is more in a rush, probably like when you're guiding on the Adelberg, as you do in 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 the Canadian Rockies. And for sure, in, in some situation, this point does not take place because you're losing this hour or this half an hour or whatever. Uh, I always try because I have the advantage. I'm not uh, I'm not so much into this daily business. I have a lot of clients. They ski with me for years and years and years. And so I have the time to include this. But yeah, in the daily business, what some some guides as um, platforms offer so you you don't know the, the clients and on the next day you get the next one in in this daily business it is hard i i also did i i work also with with one platform in st anton sometimes I, not many days but but in this setting i take this time as well but uh yeah it's for sure a thing that can in general can be improved yeah for sure rudy has has a, has found a, a a good point what what the guides in general could do better yeah this was uh this was a very interesting talk it didn't take just 20 minutes as i said anyway it was super interesting um i i feel that there are that there is a common ground somewhere that there are problems which probably uh, rudy sees and criticizes uh, very in depth but where you also see some room for improvement at least at he here and there and uh, yeah i hope in the next uh, couple of years we can maybe maybe change something to the better and 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 learn from also from things which uh, are done differently somewhere else and um, and also good you know to hear why some things are done the way they are in austria there's reasons for things and so it was really good to hear your insight on why certain things are the way they are Yeah, I think we 
we can improve on on different things for sure but we also have to have to commit that we have our situation and that is a different situation than on on other countries probably or for sure and yeah that we cannot change everything because the situation won't change the next years yeah definitely thank you thank you <laughs> it was a good good hour <laughs> danke gut alles klar ciao you reached the end of this episode this episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast was produced by Caleb Merrill Anna Heuberger and myself Matthias Walcher thanks again to our supporters Listen Avalanche Control Ten Barrel Brewing and Into West Insurance and if you like what we're doing here you can also donate and support us more information on theavalanchehour.com subscribe rate and review the show on whatever podcast platform you're listening on or even better, tell a friend. Follow us on the socials, Facebook and Instagram at The Avalanche Hour Podcast. Artwork credits go to Mike Tia. You can check out his stuff at MikeTia.com. The next episode will be aired on March 1st by Caleb Merrill. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks also to co-host Anna Heuberger, Christoph Mitterer and our guests Rudi Kranabitter and Albert Leichtfried for contributing to this show. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there.